Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and uh, Merry Christmas. Welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I am here with Michael Zarling. <laughs> That's creative. And we're out, folks. And this is what we like to call the wives episode. We are here with my wife, Abigail, and uh, Michael's wife, Shelly. So welcome, ladies. Thanks. Thank you. Did that register? Yes, it's, I, I think so. It was quiet, but you got to get really close to the microphones. They said they don't want to lick the microphones. Well, it's it's kind of ridiculous if you saw how close we needed to be to the microphone. Which you and have to be even closer. And we're sharing a microphone. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I have a question for for you, Abby. Fire. <laughs> so what is it like to raise only boys? Because I have no clue. Um, well, I, w- I tell this to a lot of people. I was, I'm, I'm the oldest of four and I have only brothers. So I was not raised with a sister and then God gave us only sons. Um, so I'm not raising any daughters. So it, it kind of terrifies me actually the thought of having, you know, either a sister or, or a daughter. And I, it's, you kind of do what you know, I guess. So what's it like raising only boys? It's she, she doesn't know anything else. I, well, I don't. About, yeah, what about you, Jeremy? Uh, I thought it would be nice to have a girl in the mix, but uh, apparently God thought uh, that this was better. And uh, so what You're is not it? Not too old yet. That's true. <laughs> um, oh, Andre has asked. <laughs> and we say God if God wants to give us another baby, he will. Um, so we, let's throw the question back to you. What is it like raising nothing but girls? Drama. Lots of drama. That's it? That's all you're going to say? Okay, it's raising girls. What would you say? I would say it has been wonderful in that they have done everything I have done as a father except for Star Wars. Uh, Bell, our youngest, has done some of the Star Wars, like Clone Wars and so forth, but none of them, I, I have failed as a father, none of them have any interest in Star Wars. So other than that, it's been pretty good. Now, people will ask me about raising daughters. I thought one of our members, when we first moved here, we had three girls, and then Bell was born two years after we got here. And... Uh, she had, Elaine had three daughters at the time, and she said, Pastor, God knew that you were man enough to be the only man in your house. So, Oh, I'm convinced God didn't give us boys because of the names you picked out. Cher, what right. names did you pick, Michael? So, so Jeremy, you, you pick every episode a different Z name. Yeah, and Shelly's probably right that I had boys' names picked out. So they would... <laughs> they, were, they would have been Gabriel Michael, so I thought that was a that was a good biblical angelical name. And that one I agreed to. But then the other names would have been Zachariah, Zephaniah, Zarling, and Zebediah, Zacchaeus, Zarling. And one of our daughters was supposed to be. I have no idea. <laughs> Moses's wife. Zipporah. Zipporah. Well, there you because go. he wanted to call her Zippy Zarling. Well, thank you, Lord, that they are my children, too. 
this is this is why my mission counselor said years ago when I was a, a brand new missionary first year in the ministry and he said you know Mike it is very good that you married above yourself <laughs> It's also good because if that little girl would have gone to a Lutheran grade school where they know their Bible pretty well, the readings about Zipporah, none of them are the most flattering. Um, yes. <laughs> but a Christmas present every single year. Oh, man. <laughs> you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Yes. But one of the blessings of having daughters is that I was able to tell, uh, well, especially the older two now that have, have boyfriends, well, all four have boyfriends, but I haven't said it to the younger two yet, is... Pretty sure the oldest one's married. Well, yeah. But that, I, but I did, say, I, did, not, I did say to him... He's upgraded from a boyfriend. Yes. I guess. <laughs> Is. We'll edit that out, Brandon. No, Brandon, I love you. I, I have said to them, you know, people at church tell me I am very good at funerals. Oh, jeez. So that is, that is my warning to each one of the boys is do not have, me, have to make me preach for your funeral sermon. So, what, what other questions do you have for our wives? Uh, I, this Be was, careful. This one's a little more serious. Is what is it like to be a pastor's wife, Shelley? If you want to go first. Well, every congregation I think is a little different. Um, when we were in Kentucky, we were so far away from the motherland, if you will, of Wisconsin, especially southeastern Wisconsin. And most of our members were new to the Christian faith in general, much less Wells. They really didn't have any expectations. So whatever I did was fine with them. And when we came to Epiphany, they had gone through such a rocky time that, again, that didn't. they were just so excited to have a pastor and their family here willing to do the work and be around and <clears throat> just support them in general that I kind of walked on water for a while and they've really left me alone and I don't have many expectations. Now I've had friends that have had high expectations and then they can't follow through and that makes it hard for the pastor and their wives too. But I've been blessed. Yeah. It's been great. I mean, it's one of many, you know, one of many hats that you wear. So there are days there are days when it, you know, oh, it's really a pastor's wife hat kind of a day when um, you don't see your husband for a few days or something major is going on. But other than that, I mean. We found out in uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan, that um, th- particularly in the African-American culture, but maybe maybe elsewhere too, I don't know, but that was, that was our surroundings. And... Um, we found out that there's a title for the wife of the pastor at a church. It is first lady. Yeah. So our neighbor was like shouting that at me in Aldi. She's like, Hey, first lady. And it's just, it's what it is, but I've, I've never been called that before. So what is it like for what t- title does Shelley have? Because people have called me the high and holy pontiff of the scene. You're the only one that says that. <laughs> okay. Well, people being one. <laughs> so then what title do you give me? <laughs> I haven't thought of that yet. <laughs> I, I think first lady is a good title. Okay. That's, that's the title I give you, first lady. 
do you, do you ever find uh, Abby or Shelly that uh, sometimes you get um, treated like a conduit to the pastor, like like you know, will you will you put in a good word with your husband or uh, trying to? Um, I, I was trying to set my wife up to share some things, but it looks like you've got something ready to go. We would. Uh, I was teaching a women's Bible study number of years ago, and one of our older ladies, who have now been sainted, came to me and told me this long story about what was going on and how mad she was that Pastor hadn't come to visit her. And I looked at her and I said, "Did you tell him?" "No, I'm telling you, so you can tell him." <laughs> yeah, when you were asking that, Shelley and I were both like nodding, like yes, all the time. People see you as an extension of your husband, and that's great because what you're one flesh, and that that's only natural. But um, but it it does present some problems when they think that um, it's maybe a way to avoid a difficult conversation with the pastor by just telling the wife instead. So. And on that, I know Shelly and I have talked about this in the past that you've had members that have said to you, well, I told this to pastor so you know about this. And then then what do you say? He doesn't share those things with me unless you tell him specifically he's allowed to. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that's a a big thing. So this is one. uh, This next question is more. I, I, I don't think you two have this issue with Jeremy and myself, but what about. I'm sure there's lots of other wives of pastors where the pastor messes up. <laughs> we do not have that problem, right. Shelly, do we? Exactly. So then, I can't stop laughing. Yes, I think we do. So, because, uh, you know, what, you know, the relationship that you have with your husband, but he's also your pastor. You know, how do you then uh, deal with that relationship? You might have a difficulty in the home, and yet understanding that he is also the pastor that's up in front preaching God's word to you, uh, absolving you, and so forth. Maybe this is a good question, because um, I've often wondered about this. How do you take his preaching of God's word seriously when you also share a bed with him in a bathroom and uh, have, you know, you get an inside scoop on all of his weaknesses. And uh, yeah, how do you do that? Um, Well, something you once told me, dear, was that if, if there would be anything super, I don't know, big, that would come up in the relationship or, or whatever, that um, the circuit pastor would be a really good place to go. Like uh, that circuit pastor or even your district president kind of serves as pastor to the pastor's wife, um, if need be, uh, because that is kind of a tricky situation that you can get into sometimes. Uh, but other than that, I think uh, this is where hearing scripture just kind of is, you know, it it transcends everything else. And this is why we have the divine service, right? It pulls you out of your daily and, and focuses you on, um, on the important truths of God's word and on the sacraments. And, and then it does. It makes it, it makes it easier to think about what you should be thinking about instead of the chores that didn't get done. Or, I mean, I'm just pulling out random <laughs> examples. Shelly? 
Bal- balancing the checkbook, um, <clears throat> paying the bills, that kind of thing. Do you do that, Jeremy? No. Well, we're on the same boat there, too. <laughs> what? What's a checkbook? <laughs> yeah. The thing I ask you to sign every once yes. in a while. Shelly has said for our 28-plus uh, years of marriage is that she is hoping for that I die first in that. <laughs> That's not what I said. <laughs> That's the way I think it. That, because she knows that I'll, I'll be in debtor's prison because I won't know how to pay any bills at all. I have worked on auto pay, so you're probably okay for a while as long as you're even by member to deposit the checks. Yes. And, and that I won't even do it either because I have no clue. And our treasurer knows that I have no clue what I make. It's not fun, is it? It's not the fun work. No. Yeah. Anyhow, going back to Jeremy's question, Shelley. Um, yeah, go ahead. What was Jeremy's question? I got sidetracked. Well, just uh, taking the the preaching of God's word from your husband seriously when you know uh, his his weaknesses and flaws. Well, there's always a time that you have to set those aside. You know, God's word is more important than the flaws. And while I know the flaws and see the flaws, learning God's word is more important than those. And yes, Michael, you have flaws. <laughs> yeah, this is my my wife that with her friends at church or her daughter sitting there in Bible study, not during church, but in Bible study, that they're the naughtiest. <laughs> They are, they are whispering and laughing. I didn't say I was perfect. No, she is not either. Um, pretty close, though. <laughs> not, no. So, Abby, you made the comment about the divine service. Do you think that, that maybe then there's an advantage to, for either of you, there's an advantage to having uh, liturgical forms of worship, whereas if you've got a type of church where the pastor is kind of the celebrity uh and uh there's a cult built around well how personable and and engaging he is that then that's probably harder for a pastor's wife to separate the the flaws from the preacher um yeah maybe i i guess i can't speak to that just because uh we've been blessed to always be in congregations um you know lutheran congregations that that are uh, liturgical and keep things focused on um, the word and the sacraments. But I suppose that could be a challenge um, for, for a pastor's wife in that way. Or maybe, um, I think maybe what I could see more is if you have a really big personality as a pastor, uh, feeling like you have to kind of live up to that same expectation um, as as the pastor's wife but that's just a stab in the dark because you, so you you're have saying if, real, she, if, yeah. if he is a really charismatic person then she might feel forced to make herself a very charismatic person too mm-hmm. yep i don't know i could be wrong you're uh you're not charismatic <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love you. Uh, I wasn't suggesting I know, that I was. I, know. I was just. But it's it's like I'm trying to answer trying, a question. I was when, trying to yeah. re- repeat back to you. <laughs> so basically, your responses. Thank the Lord for a liturgical service when your pastor, yes, especially if he's not your husband, is not. Yes, okay. yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Pastor, sorry. Yes. 
<laughs> so your answer made me think of this is how special is it ladies with to be married to us <laughs> well that was the second part of the question no how, how special is it to be able to take the sacrament with your husband and, and then your your spouse I treasure that every time. Um, our pastor that we vicared under, I was able to go vicaring with Mike, and it was wonderful that he taught us to take communion together, and that is something I treasure. And our children take communion with us when they're with us too, and I just that it's a special moment. Yeah, I think um, this the call that that Jeremy currently has has made it possible for us to worship together and commune together more often than probably we ever have been able to in the past, just because on Sunday mornings, I'm usually uh, doing music and stuff too. Um, but I'd share something that somebody was was sharing with me personally too, is, um, you know, it's really hard to kind of stay I don't want to say stay mad at your spouse, but you know, when you're, when you're in a marriage and those, those issues arise and then you present yourself at the Lord's table together and, and you are uh, fully cognizant of the full forgiveness that Christ is giving you. And, and then you're standing right next to your spouse and you're like, wow, and I can't even forgive this person for, this little thing, it, it kind of bears more weight. Um, and, and I would also say that, uh, just a few months ago, Jeremy and I, uh, uh, one of our, uh, close friends was killed in a car accident, left behind a younger widow. And, um, that was another time that I really started to realize this gift of the Lord's body and blood, the sacrament, is one of those things that um, we share with the saints in heaven, really. So, yes, we are communing at the Lord's table with our spouse, with the people here at Water of Life, um, but also with um, those who are sainted in glory already. And that, that just takes on kind of a whole new meaning, especially when somebody so close to you has, has gone on to glory. And the reason I, I think of that question, too, is because here at Water of Life at a Racine campus, we do continuous communion when a seminary student or a guest pastor is doing the services. And then when I'm here, then we do table communion where, we, where we're kneeling. And that's when we are able to take communion together. And then I would commune the communion assistance, and then I would I'm at the last table and then Shelly and her daughters come up and then we take communion as a family. And one of the things I've learned over there is I've never really talked about it, but it's just kind of, you know, people take on in a congregation, they take on the mentality, the personality oftentimes of the pastor. And so I see a lot of our communion assistants that their spouse comes up for communion if they're communion assistants and they take communion with them. And because they understand that uh, that wonderful connectivity of the sacrament. The question I have for you, Jeremy, is whether it's now at chapel you're doing, or at Shoreline where you're doing chapel services, or before. How many times did you use family stories from the pulpit? Uh, we we always had an agreement that I would not do that. 
Um, it, uh, or I'd have to have very good reason and have it uh, per- permitted ahead of time uh, before doing that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's increased more now. I don't think it has, although in the, maybe it's more so in the classroom because then you have you kind of have to be on your toes and, and throwing things out there to keep people's attention however possible. And so I think a lot more of our home life gets aired in the classroom now than it ever did in the pulpit. But that's okay because I teach teenagers and they quickly forget everything that you told them. <laughs> well, and and I would I would say the same thing. I don't think I tell a whole lot of family stories from the pulpit, but in Bible study, whether it's in catechism class or my adult study, then I will open up and tell lots of stories. So I don't know, ladies, what you think of your husbands, if they tell a lot of family stories in the pulpit or from classroom or in the classroom setting or adult Bible study setting, if, if that's a good thing or a bad thing or just a thing. It's a thing, that's for sure. Um, I think you used to tell more stories when our kids were younger. As they got older, they started saying, Dad, knock it off, and then you knocked it off. Even though those are the really good stories. <laughs> But you tend to embellish the stories and make them better than what they are, and that bothers your children. Did you did you ever see a movie called Big Fish? Yes. It, it and it's fishes. I think it's spelled P H. No. No. It's just Big Fish. Okay. And it's 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 all about this dad who would always take his stories from his life and embellish them to just extreme levels and it always irritated his son uh until the dad died and then on his deathbed he uh he told his son to make up a story and and embellish it and yeah that just made me think of that i i appreciate that what that's a movie reference for i just appreciate it yeah what uh what's your response yeah no i would say that's accurate um that I have forbidden you for telling any stories from the pulpit. And you were you were always very good very good about that. But I will say um I think that's one of the things that probably makes for a good classroom, you know, give and take with students, right? They they know that you're a, a guy who has a wife and a family and they and they want to know more about your life. Um since I've been teaching a bunch of classes and just stuff out at Shoreland, I get asked also quite a bit just about our family life. They very much want to know what you are like at home, dear. Yeah. And, um, oh, and Mrs. Lightning, this one time we told pastor to buy you flowers on the way home. And did he ever do that? And, you know, it's all this kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) Well, I said, I believe he came home with a plant. I did. Yeah. And he did. And it was very nice. It just seems wasteful to buy flowers that are going to just shrivel up and die. Amen. Okay. Well, this might add a few minutes to our podcast. So we're just going to like not have the flower discussion, but (laughs) back to you, pastor. (laughs) Okay. Well, I got a story to tell you. So (laughs) last night was our Christmas program for Wisconsin Lutheran school. And I had an eighth grader come up to me today and say, Mrs. Zarling, I didn't know you were Pastor Zarling's wife (laughs) until he sat next to you and put his arm around you during the program. I never put the two of you together before. (laughs) That's hilarious. And that made me think of 
couple of years ago because I I try and bike all year round and even in the cold and snow and I think it was like two years ago one of the uh, students in our middle school asked Shelly does pastor own a car because <laughs> as I was biking in the snow the last question I have for you is uh, what what do you have to teach pastors pastors wives and their families about balancing ministry and family life and and the reason I asked that question give you some time to think about it is what would you like to teach us about yeah. well, but balancing? I, I think also our listeners because uh, one of our one of the cousins of my father so he's like in his 90s now but he told me one time that uh, he was a Missouri Synod teacher in, in conservative Missouri Synod and his family, his his uh, sons and daughters were no longer Lutheran. I don't know if they're even Christian anymore because of the way they saw their dad always involved in the school. He was a gifted organist in the church and just was not at home. And then they also saw the way maybe the church and school took advantage of their father and wanted nothing to do with Christianity because of that. So... If you can speak to that balance and kind of encourage our, you know, whoever listens to us of uh, your, your, whether it's our members and members of other Christian churches that their pastors and teachers need to have a balance or encourage our pastors and teachers, you have to strike that balance. I don't think this is just a pastor and teacher thing, though. I think this is across the board. We all get so involved in everything, whether it's sports, our job, our hobbies, our activities. We're just so involved that we don't learn to find the balance. And I remember when our oldest, Abby, came to me and said, Mom, why is Dad never around? And I remember saying, well, he's got a job to do, and that's part of his job, and my job is to be here to raise you right now. She says, but I miss Dad. And then I remember having a conversation with you about it, and then you changed your ways at that point. So sometimes it's just the, the little kids coming to us and reminding us that they're number one in our lives, right? Well, Jesus is always number one, but they're the reason that we need Jesus so much, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe. Um, but just that they open our eyes to things that we don't always see. No, Shelly, that's a great point that it's any career. I can just off the top of my head think right now of a student that uh, I've, I was talking to not long ago who whose parents are not called workers, pastors, teachers, anything like that, uh, and yet uh, they they could probably stand to spend a little more time getting involved in their kids' lives. Um, so, yeah, that that is that's a good reminder regardless of your calling. Abby, do you have anything to say to that? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's the easy way out. I mean, yeah. Well, what they said, right? And, and, yeah. and, and with that, I think whether it's in a secular uh, job like you were talking about or in the, uh, the pastor-teacher called worker job is we cannot feel guilty. There's always going to be work to do. And then to to balance that work of and I've talked to a pastor that's a little bit older than me and he said that you know for him they spent too much time in the ministry and not enough with the family but his his idea and he's probably in the 60s 
that his idea of that maybe the pastors that are coming out today are putting the family first. And so that's the thing. You have to have that balance. I need to spend time with my people. And, and that's why I've always appreciated the people at Epiphany, now Water of Life, is they see that, that I and our teachers, they put, we put in a lot of time. And I've never heard anyone say to me, uh, you know, Pastor, we need, you know, they're complaining about, you know, I need you here or there, is they see the work I do. And they actually tell me, you need to spend more time with, with home. And that's a wonderful thing to have God's people seeing their pastor, their shepherd, and, and not berating him or anything, but appreciating what he does. Yeah, and I think um, hopefully somewhere in 7th, 8th grade or maybe even in high school, um, our young people are really being taught about, you know, this doctrine of vocation. And and yes, we do have pastors and teachers or maybe you're, you know, a grocer or, you know, whatever your, whatever your job is. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're not also father, husband, you know, whatever. And finding the balance between that is going to look different from day to day, but it doesn't mean necessarily that one is more important than the other. But I think that's probably the trick, you know, when when we start to think, oh, you know, souls are being lost or, you know, I'm doing the Lord's work uh, by sharing the gospel or binding up the wounds of my congregation. So this this must be somehow more important. Um, and and at you know at the same time god has also given you a family or or whatever and is certainly working through you in those channels also and i think jeremy isn't there like a bible verse that's saying if you can't be a pastor or shepherd a father to your own family you probably can't be a pastor shepherd and father to a big flock yeah in the pastoral epistles right. yeah yeah and and that's why you know, when the girls were younger, like Shelly was talking about, I was cognizant, if I could, to coach their soccer teams, whether it's at Wisconsin Lutheran School or in a club team. And now, now Belle is driving, but before that, uh, my schedule had eased up a little bit just to give Shelly a, t- a, a break because, you know, for 20 plus years, she was the one that was driving them. It's, I'll, I'll spend time and I'll drive just to be able to say, be able to show. I'm going to try and help out with that balance a little bit. Should we get into the gospel, Jeremy? Yes. The gospel this Sunday, it's the it's Christmas Day, uh, and this is from John's Gospel, Chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him everything was made, and without him not one thing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as an eyewitness to testify about the light so that everyone would believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The real light that shines on everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, yet his own people did not accept him. 
But to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of blood, or of the desire of the flesh, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory he has as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Abby and Shelley, describe the nativity scenes you have in your house. Which one? Well, that's why I figured <laughs> that Abby would answer first because Shelley would have difficulty describing the 50 or so nativity <laughs> scenes that we have in our home. I didn't put them all out this year. Do you collect? It didn't intend to, but it appears that's what I'm doing. I do enjoy them. It's really fun to see all the different styles. There's, there's you know, I've got from a stuffed one that sits under the tree that a dear friend, when we were vicaring, made for us. Um, and I always let that one under the tree so the kids could play with it. And we lost baby Jesus one year, but we found him. We found Jesus in our house. Yay. <laughs> um, but in our travels, too, we look at different nativity sets. And I've got one that Mike brought back from... Um, Israel, we picked a small one up in Greece when we were able to travel there. I purchased one over the internet from Africa. It took like six months after it, Christmas for it to. It was on a slow boat, but <laughs> but made but made out of stone and so forth. And and I've made a number of them. Yeah, and I've been gifted some over the years too. Um, when my grandparents passed away, my mom had bought them a beautiful nativity that is now mine. Um, when we were in San Antonio, we were able to go to the Growing in Grace that the Wells puts on for pastors for 25 years in the ministry, and we were able to find a cowboy one that I forgot about and did not put out, but i got to go see if I can find That's it right. again. It's, but with that, with the nativity scenes, Abby, what is missing in whether it's your nativity scenes or other missing scenes and so forth? What's really different from our... Americanized imagination of the nativity scene versus what kind of what Luke explains in his gospel, even though that's not that's the Christmas Eve gospel before we get into the Christmas Day gospel. Yeah, well, I think um, a lot of the nativity scenes are going for aesthetics, right? You know, so uh, our Lord was just born in the humblest of circumstances, beyond what we we can probably even fathom or what Hollywood could even fathom for us. So, um, like I've got a Fontanini, you know, nativity scene or whatever. And those wise men look pretty, pretty drippy, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> see, I'm like putting the, the slang in here. I, I had one of my um, teens yeah. text me the other day about, uh, I had texted her about, uh, making our, uh, gingerbread houses. And she, she said lit and, and I had to ask Belle, who is a year older than this young lady, what does that mean? Is that a good thing? She said, yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. Uh, yes, they're, sometimes it does seem like the students out at Shoreland are speaking a foreign language. Um, but but, not, yeah. but not German. <laughs> not German. Nope. <laughs> not even Spanish sometimes. Uh, a lot of times the ones who are trying to, 
talk German are not actually talking German. And one of the students, like I was actually, I was subbing for your class, dear, and one of the students is like, um, if you could pick two people to ship in this reli- in this classroom, who would it be? And I'm like, ship? I'm like, what? Oh, I, I know and, this one. Oh, I well, I did not. I totally did not. And I'm like, ship? And they're like, yeah, like relationship. And I'm like, when did this who would you set up in a relationship? Yeah. You you are shipping them. You're shipping them. It's, anyway. it's, be, it's a, a good. Let me give a boomer definition. Uh, <laughs> it it would be matchmaking. Ah. This shipping is matchmaking. I feel so old. Yeah. Um. So we we kind of bounced off to Luke two yeah. after I read John chapter one. <laughs> I know. I'm gonna bring it back. So expect nothing so less. <laughs> So Matthew describes Christmas from John's point of, or from Joseph's point of view, uh, and we heard that viewpoint in the fourth Sunday in Advent. Luke again, I did not read Matthew. I know I'm getting to it. <laughs> Luke describes Christmas from Mary's point of view, and that's the Christmas Eve gospel. But I've always looked at John's gospel as the the viewpoint from heaven, from God's point point of view and we hear that viewpoint at Christmas morning uh, and we we try to comprehend what this means with four simple words the word became flesh so Jeremy what does that say about God the word became flesh no I, I'm still actually trying to um, jump into your train of thought with God the God point of view uh, yeah Luke Luke okay I get it now Luke you said Luke is Ma- Mary or Mary and and Matthew would be Joseph's point of view, and John is God's point of view. And I like that a lot. Uh, and and so I'm not going to speak to the question that you asked, but it's more, <laughs> it's more, it's more to the the opening verses that what is what is God's point of view? It's I made this world. That this is this is my creation. I'm the creator. I I'm above this. I am beyond this i could squash this whole thing and annihilate it like a bug and yet instead of doing that what am i going to do i'm going to well it is it is to your it is an answer to your question uh the the word was made flesh the word actually took on and became part of his creation he's like i i made the dust there's not a single thing that has been made that i didn't make oh wait did i say that right Mm -hmm. yeah uh, everything that's made is something made by me, and now I'm going to unite myself with that dust that I created on day one uh, of the heavens and the earth. So then, ladies, what is it? What do these words of uh, the word became flesh tell us about Scripture? In other words, why does Jesus have that nickname? Is that kind of yeah? yeah. The, the the word is the nickname for Jesus, and why yeah? Why why does he have that nickname? Well, and there, what I was thinking about is that whether it's God speaking to Moses from a burning bush, or Elijah in a quiet whisper, or Daniel writing, or uh, or to Daniel with writing on the wall, God speaks to his people through words. His wor- words carry forth God's will and purpose. Can I tie this into our greater theme of this whole episode? There's a theme? Yeah. Okay. What's yeah. the theme? Marriage. Oh, okay. Oh, 
And what is the success? What what is the most successful way to have a, or have a successful marriage? Is with three chords. Com- no, oh, I was going to say community. Yeah, three. Okay, so Jesus is the third chord of uh, the husband and the wife, and Jesus um, uh, communication is uh, it, it, that. I mean, I've often thought of reading this gospel that way and saying, "In the beginning was the communication, and the communication was with God, and the communication was God." And uh, that's when that's how marriages break down. That's how any relationship breaks down, is a, a lack of talking. And yeah. yeah, and with that, I was also thinking about that this is the way that God communicates with his people throughout the Old and New Testaments is through the Word. And this is the way that he communicates is through the Word that is the Son of God. So then, uh, Abby and Shelley, what do these words, the Word became flesh, tell us about ourselves? Why did the Word, why did the Son of God have to become flesh? Well, he had to become flesh to die. If he was not man, he would never, we would not be able to die because God can't die. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah, just that idea that the creator becomes one of his creation. Uh, I just wrote the the devotion for, uh, or my meditation for Christmas Day, and, and it's almost always on John 1. I don't usually go off from that text and this one I had heard a song and so it made me think about this that the the sermon theme is the word became flesh in breath and heartbeat and what I'm doing in that sermon is just kind of demonstrating how God created Adam out of the dust and then breathed life into him and then gave him a heartbeat and then for for our people to imagine that God came down and was in the virgin womb, or in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and then at around six weeks old, his heart started beating, you know, that quick beat of an infant. And then when he was born, he took his first breath. But then I take the people to 33 years later, Jesus on the cross, the word that was made flesh, now he breathes his last when he says, it is finished, and he, his heart stops beating. And then the Roman spear pierces both his lungs and his heart. And then for three days, there's no heartbeat. There's no uh, breathing. And then just imagine, as soon as the sunlight comes up on Easter dawn, there's a heartbeat. There's a breath uh, bringing life back to where there was once death. And, And just to try and imagine of God coming down and becoming flesh so that we who are flesh can one day be with God. And, and that's the joy of Christmas morning. And that's, that's something I, I was telling uh, Abby about this the other day, about I had chapel this morning for our kids, and I said, I started writing this for, my, for, the, for chapel. I said, ah, it's a little too esoteric for the kids, I think. It's, it's a little too, yeah, it's a little too <laughs> deep for them. Because I, 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 I like to have something deep, because this is a deep text when you really think about it. So then, Jerry, what is the shame in this section when you look at verse 5 and following? What's the shame? That there is darkness. Yeah, what is um, that darkness? Is, is our, our sin. Um, the natural propensity of humans to reject God, to, to hate him, to be dead and blind to him. 
Yeah, it says that the word did not, or that they did not understand it. Uh, the darkness has not understood it. That the word of God is opening people's eyes to eternal life, and then they want nothing to do with it. So, Abby and, and Shelley, and then Jeremy, after that, what are some examples that you can think of of our world today, our culture not recognizing Jesus for who he really is? They use him as a good example instead of being our savior. I think that's one place. Um, I wrote down a couple of notes when you sent this, and one of the things I wrote was the what would, what would Jesus do theme that was so prevalent for a while. I think we get hooked up on um, what Jesus would do instead of reason, reading what did Jesus do, because that's more important than what would he do we got to go back to scripture and focus there. Yeah, and I think uh, kind of going back to our theme, because I guess we have a theme now here, um, (laughs) of uh, marriages or relationships. I think people are fine having a very distant relationship with Jesus. They know about him. I know who he is in general. Um, But maybe there's a a lack of understanding when you get into um, doctrine and and what exactly scripture says about Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Um, And unfortunately, I mean, we all all will face the, the sun on the last day, right? And and really having the faith to trust in Jesus as your savior, as opposed to just kind of knowing about him and knowing that he existed could be could be detrimental so so to that i think of people often talk about a relationship with jesus and it's kind of like that boyfriend girlfriend relationship as opposed to a relationship of a marriage where you're changed that the spouse of jesus as the husband that you actually change your life and your lifestyle to be with jesus Shelly, I think Michael Zarling just admitted that you changed him. <laughs> Always for the better. So, Jeremy, what what do you think? Uh, what are some ex- what's an example of people not recognizing or G- accepting Jesus for who He really is in our culture today? I, I think the most important points uh, our wives have already touched on. Um, I, I suppose you could add just the. Um, the way that people make assumptions about Jesus, uh, that he, well, he would be tolerant or he would be, um, uh, accepting he's so loving and gentle and, uh, it's overlooking a whole bunch of parts in the gospels where he rips into people and he scolds people and he says, woe to you. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, even, even the woman at the well, he, he said, you've had five husbands, um, and, and he's not nasty about it, but he is very honest. And, uh, I think that's a, a way that there's, there's darkness or refusal to recognize him. Well, and that's exactly what I was thinking about of, um, people changing and molding Jesus to fit them. And if you ever want to find a place uh, that is right for false theology, just watch the view. Not that I ever have. 
but I read articles that they talk about The View. And a few weeks ago, uh, one of those ladies on The View, uh, Sunny, uh, she made the outrageous and blasphemous claims that if Jesus were on earth right now, he would play a leading role in the LGBTQ plus uh, pride parade. Uh, the Son of God, she alleged, would serve as the grand marshal of the event. So there, she, like, like you were saying, Jeremy, She's making a plastic Jesus, someone that just molds to fit to whatever they want him to say, as opposed to, like Shelley said, let's look at what he actually said. Let's look at what he actually did, did and not make up someone. Uh, John writes about those who receive him and believe in his name and gives the right to become children of God. So Abby and, and Shelley, can you give examples of those who receive him and believe his name and be and to whom he has given the right to become children of God. Can you give examples of people in your ministry along with your husbands that you've seen this happen? Well, I think I won't speak for Shelley, but you know, the most memorable are when you're at the font with your own child um, or, or anybody in your congregation and uh people being brought into the waters of baptism um, and into God's family through that way. Uh, but certainly, you know, just in different ways and places, uh, really cool to be able to have a conversation with somebody and kind of watch those wheels turning in their, in their brain, whether it be, you know, in a, in a high school classroom or out on a street in a neighborhood um, oh, I never really thought about it that way. And just being able to have further conversations and sharing God's word with them, um, certainly that that unites people with, with God's family. Yeah, baptized believers is what I was thinking about too. I guess I didn't really think about any specific stories. Of course, baptizing all four of our children was pretty pretty stinking special. Jeremy, can you, can you think of anyone, whether specific or general? Um, it, it, it's hard to say. I feel like a lot of times the, the people that I've brought into the Christian faith or that God has used me to bring into the Christian faith, uh, it's kind of like Paul was saying in Corinthians about, well, this person uh, planted the seed and that person watered it and it's God that makes it grow. And uh, I, I feel like I got to be a privileged uh, partner in that somewhere in the in the growing phase. Like I, I didn't, I'm not sure I even know of the people with whom I've planted the seed or watered the seed. Um, but uh, like I, I could I could tell you stories about uh, old timers who have uh, retirees. They they finally have had enough of their relatives prevailing upon them, uh, Wisconsin Lutheran members in other areas of the country, that whenever they come to town would uh, bring their brother-in-law to church at our church because they were Wells members elsewhere. And then uh, finally he ends up joining. That was during the time that I was there. But uh, that was happening long before I got there. Um, uh, the Things like that. Um, yeah. Well, as you were talking, I was thinking about an assignment I gave to our eighth graders yesterday morning right? that I asked them because of our Wisconsin Lutheran School Christmas service last night, and I, I had the prayer, 
and I hadn't written one yet, so I asked them to write the prayer. I said, write a prayer, and it has to have three paragraphs and three sentences in, in each paragraph, and the theme of the service is, do not be afraid, uh, I bring you good news. So I said, write the first paragraph about do not be afraid, and the second paragraph about uh, good news, and the third paragraph about the faculty and students at uh, WLS, and those kids rocked it. You know, I it was a really long prayer last night because there was a lot of good sentences in that prayer, and then I asked the students afterwards for the end of the class. I said, write a thank you letter to some teacher or aide in the class, and one of the ladies, she took she wrote it in the five minutes that we had left, and then she wrote on her own during other study hall time or whatever, one to a lot of the other teachers and so forth. It wasn't a lot. She hit everyone in the building. Yeah, and it was. Uh, it was amazing, and she she told one of the teachers, "I know most of the students and the uh, parents don't get your humor, but I do. They don't think you care, but I do." And you know, she was that one that wrote uh, the closing sentence in the in the prayer that I had because I just gleaned different sentences and thoughts from their prayers, and she said that uh, I really appreciate our our faculty because they're like a second family to us. I was just, I was going to bring up that line specifically after having heard the prayer a few times. Um, that one really stood out to me. And um, and it's true. I mean, we've all done teaching here. So you know how much time you spend with a kid, you know, over the course of a week. And, and the teachers are so influential that it does become like a second family. And God be praised then if you are having an influence over their spiritual spiritual life there. And with that, one of our, our teachers put in our group chat this morning, and I thought it was pretty uh, cognizant of him to say, understand that the kids may be, I forget the word he used, I'll use the word squirrely, it's not the word he used, but because they don't want to go home. You know, you would think most kids, and most kids do, want to go home for the, for the Christmas break. But he pointed out, some of these kids have such awful broken homes at home. They have... Uh, a, a setting here that's safe and comfortable for them and they don't want to go home and so they may act up today and we had a seventh grader in tears today when it was time to go home because she did not want to leave yeah and and to understand i think you know in that previous verse when when uh john is talking about those uh that don't understand the gospel and then to understand in this verse he's talking about those who do understand what a blessing that is Jeremy, what was John the Baptist's role in God's plan of salvation? Because John and his gospel is kind of bouncing all around the, the, the Christmas and then Christmas message all the way to 30 years. So what was John's John the Baptist message? I'm going to step in on this one. Okay. Just because I was listening to your podcast from when you were interviewing Mr. Scriver from Shoreland, and the first thing that came to my mind was he's a pacer. <laughs> so, dear, how Boom. is how Love is Mike drop? Yep, exactly. <laughs> how is John the Baptist a pacer, dear? He's the forerunner. He's leading the way. All right, Jeremy, forget that one. See, answer your question. You could not improve on that answer. Uh, verses twelve and thirteen, Jeremy, speak about being born again. That's becoming God's children. Often the term born again is used in the context of making a decision to accept Christ. 
whose decision was it that you and I became God's children? Uh, I was like dividing up into the three parts of verse 13 to uh, handle this topic because uh, the way that I see John describing it, uh, that you've got all three of the major worldviews or major false religions that are any other option outside of Christianity. Um, now, okay, so I'll, I'll start actually with the middle one because you brought up the people who talk about making a decision for Christ or choosing to choosing Jesus. Uh, and that is flatly refuted by uh, John's words. They were born not of the desire of the flesh or a, a choice of human human will. Um, that's not, it's not by choosing. Now, the first one, they're born not of blood. Um, that's, that's kind of, uh, maybe what you'd call universalism, um, or, uh, any kind of, uh, religion that is racist actually, um, that would just say, uh, you're just naturally God's child. It, just because you're born on the face of the earth and you're a human being, you are automatically going to heaven. You are God's child. And John says, no, it's not by your blood birth that you're God's child. And it's not by your choosing that you're God's child. And then the last one is uh, born of a husband's will, uh, that you're not born that way either. Uh, and that one is uh, a little bit less common, but it's still a big part of a lot of world religions or worldviews that's basically fatalistic. And it's the idea is a husband's will is a very hormonal word. It is kind of like uh, I'm in the mood to uh, have babies or to make babies. And so uh, th that's the only reason you were born is because your father had a mood swing. Um, and that... That's and that's that's kind of what you find with fatalism or, or Calvinism that says uh, God, well God picked some people to be condemned and some people to be saved and you don't choose Him, uh, which is true, but He also chose the people that are going to be condemned and and so it's just that you happen to catch Him on a good day that you got picked for salvation. You were you're born by a husband's will. It's a hormonal swing. Um, no, you're, you're not born by natural birth. You're not born by you choosing it. And you're not born by a hormonal swing in God. You are born of God. He, he is your father and, uh, he, he fathers you through faith. Uh, he chose you. That's, that's the long answer to your question. But, but that's, but why is that so important that God chose us as opposed to us choosing God? And, and the reason I ask that question is because it is so per pervasive in our culture. This morning when Shelly and I were getting ready to go to church and for her to go to school, uh, she had on the radio of a, a, a local station, and they had a, a Bible verse on. And I thought, well, this is pretty, pretty nice that they're talking about sin and grace and forgiveness, and then they messed it all up. It was a Billy Graham uh, prayer and then they had the altar call on the radio of saying this prayer. If you say this prayer, well, then you know you can become a believer. As opposed to, here's a here's the Bible verse: God has saved you. Believe this, you know, and or of a. So basically, you're you're saying this is important because every uh, 
every religion, every false religion on earth makes it some kind of work of yours. And when you turn it into a human choice, then that that's a checklist now for you. You have to... Make sure that did you really do it? Did you actually decide? But it, but Christian religions do that too, and that's right. that's the sad part. It doesn't give God the glory. Everything we do should give God glory, and if we're taking credit, that's not giving Him glory. And and they don't even realize that they're stealing the credit from God by saying that you have to make that decision. But you are right. And one of our members just told me yesterday that she had gone to a. This was a Pentecostal church up in Oak Creek, north of us, and it was a very good play, she said. But in the middle of it, they had the altar call and, you know, make your decision for Christ, uh, that you have uh, chosen God as opposed to what this verse says. No, God chose you. But that's why I'm talking about it's so pervasive and uh, it can just grab hold of people as opposed to what you know, real Christianity, Lutheranism is, is like Shelley said, God chose us, and, and that takes all the weight off of us. You were asking about um, people that you that that you brought the word of God to, and and they were converted, um, and it make what you just were talking about made reminded me of an adult confirmand that I actually got to. He was pretty sure he had never been baptized as a child. Uh, so he grew up in one of these, like you said, uh, Christian denominations that teaches a, a decision theology. And um, he he would tell the story about how when he was a little boy, uh, he heard an altar call and he went and, and answered it. He went up to the front and wanted to, to go and be, you know, accept Jesus into his heart or whatever. And um, I think it was his stepdad or somebody who, who pointed out that, well, where did the desire come from? Before you even went up there, the desire came from the Holy Spirit giving you that urge to go. So um, a lot of times, thankfully, God's word still works even in those some of those denominations where they emphasize the wrong thing. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So... Abby and Shelley, why is it important that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us? We're supposed to be talking so they can be whispering yeah. <laughs> behind the scenes. <laughs> so why, why is it so important that the Word became flesh? Well, he had to be true man to die. He, again, we said this earlier, if he wasn't true man, he couldn't die because God can't die. Anything more than that? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we could go on about it, well, but that's it's the whole it's, point of the podcast. Well, is going I, I, <laughs> I know. I do feel and like the point we of touched the podcast on, is also not to talk about people talking behind the scenes. I know. I just, <laughs> hey, this is a special episode. I'm going to call you it's guys a out. Very special. I know. Episode. <laughs> I know. Merry Christmas. No, I do feel like we touched on this already. Like Shelley said. Um, the word became flesh and um, maybe maybe if you want more, if you want me to expound on it a little bit, yes. um, the, the dwelling the dwelling among us is is pretty huge. Um, and a lot of pastors and devotion books have pointed out just this beautiful connection with the with the Old Testament, uh, the word dwelling was the the tented among us, just like 
um, they had in the tabernacle and, and what a really great picture that that puts in their brains too. Um, not just, you know, their 40 years wandering in the desert and always living in tents, but um, God really being in the midst of them. And, um, and it, it provides a great visual for us today too, right? Um, if you can imagine us, you know, Jesus being here among us now, uh, doing a podcast with us, really, that's, that's what we need to think of him as, as true man, fully, fully human, because he was. Um, it puts a lot of different things into perspective and, um, and makes his sacrifice that, that much more meaningful for us. Let's get into the epistle lesson, because uh, you know your pastors are probably going to be preaching on the gospel lesson, which is fantastic. But this epistle lesson is also important for us to to review from Hebrews chapter one. And and a, a theme of Hebrews, and you'll hear it here, is that the writer to the Hebrews is really comparing that Jesus is superior than you know. That's really the the theme throughout uh, the book of Hebrews. He's saying Jesus is superior than Moses. He's superior than the law. He's superior than the angels. He's superior than the sacrifices and so forth. So I'll read to verse 9. Correct. <clears throat> Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets at many times and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of the divine nature. He sustains all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. The sun became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when he brought his firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. About the angels, he says, He makes his messengers winds and his ministers flaming fire. But about the son, he says, God, your throne is forever and ever, and the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. So, Jeremy, in, in these last days, the writer to Hebrew says, uh, God has spoken to us by his Son. Uh, how does that compare with John's gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So basically, I'm asking is, why was this text paired with the... Christmas gospel from John 1. It makes me think of the, it, it, well, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but um, it, it is uh, kind of similar in proximity to uh, Peter. And Peter's way of looking at the timeline of world history basically divides it up into three segments. Uh, Peter talks a lot about four things. He talks a lot about creation uh, the flood, uh, Jesus' appearance on earth, and Judgment Day. 
And when, when you look at those four things, you realize that there are kind of three segments of world history. There, there's the time in between creation and the flood, time in between the flood and Jesus, and then the time in between Jesus and the last day, which would make this era of world history the last one. It's, it, this is the, the last major uh, turn of events ever since Jesus has come. And uh, so it's that, that appearing that uh, sets off this new era, uh, and that's, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. So, ladies, every false religion states in some way that Jesus is less than God. The writer demonstrates throughout his book that Jesus is superior in every way. How does he do that in verses 2 through 4? We're just going to go through verse by verse and basically line by line. So how does he do that in verse 2 when he says, He has spoken to us by his Son. How does he show that Jesus is superior? I'll admit I was confused by this. So I have um, that he we communicate through Jesus. He's our mediator, and he's he's our go-between between us and God. I'm not sure I'm on the right track. Yeah, and what I was thinking there is that a lot of times, what do you hear uh, that's so important in people today? It's feelings. But God does not speak to us through feelings. He speaks to us through the facts of his only begotten son. Uh, the second, the middle part of verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things. You know, how is, how is the writer showing that Jesus is superior, that he is the heir appointed of all things? There's no uh, other human that you could say that about, that you get to inherit all things. Uh, the angels certainly, as marvelous and awe-inspiring as they are, don't get to inherit all things. Uh, so that, that makes him the, the superior being. Right, and so in Shelley's and My Will, for example, it's going to be written that Jeremy will get my throwing axes. Okay. The, what will? Well, in, in my will, in our will, Jeremy will get our throwing axes, but it'll also be written. But he has to be Bell. I think he. I think he's volunteering to write the do the yeah. will writing for you. Jeremy, we've done this six times. But, we've never finished it. But the key is, the key is not the will. Is that is that you get the axes, but you have to be Bell first at it. So you're not going to get the axes. Oh. Uh, the third part of verse two, through whom he made the universe. How is, how is Jesus superior through whom he made the universe? Well, that, you know, that speaks to, to the Trinity, right? That, that the Son is the Father. Um, the Son is God, even though he is a different person. But this is, you know, this is not, this is not some, like, fluffy, you know, guy who's coming around representing something. He was there, Um and he, he was there at creation just as the Father was yeah, and, and the Spirit. Yeah, and the Father used the Son. You know, the Father spoke, and what did he speak? He spoke the Word. Uh, the first part of verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. So is that showing that Jesus is superior? He's the uh, exact reflection of God. Um are are you going to 
go on to ask about the exact imprint yep. of the divine so that's nature. The yeah, so the first part is saying they're equal, and then when it says the exact imprint of the divine nature. Uh, that one, I've, I've preached on this actually on Christmas morning before, and that one always it, it gave me a little bit of trouble. So I really had to work through it to understand that, that it, it's not saying like, Jesus is Jesus is a replica of God, or he's a duplicate of God. He is, but the important thing is that what. Uh, so you, you, I'm sure you have figurines, right? Do you have? Well, my wife has figurines. You have no Star Wars figurines. They're not called figurines. They're um, called. I am looking. Heroes. Okay, we are looking so at figurines action, right now yeah, action heroes. in your office. Okay, so what material was used to make those action heroes? Oh, if they're if they're the ones you're looking at here, that no, the, the your action heroes. Are, let's go with your action heroes my at home. Action heroes would be plastic. Okay, so uh, now imagine instead of plastic, uh, God used God to make the the figurine or the action hero. Sorry. Um, and and that's that's what Jesus is. He is not just a uh, plastic replica of God. He is a uh, replica of God that was made out of God. Um, that that's that's the idea behind the exact imprint of the divine nature. There, both of the um, I like to cheat when I read the Bible, and both of my study Bibles have said, you know, this the idea with the verb here is that. Um, wax seal, like of imprinting. So every single detail of that original seal, when you press it into the wax, is there um, in that new whatever, or when you're like printing coins or whatever. Right, and and that's the note that I saw too, Abby, is the Greek word here is character, what we get our, our English word character from. And that's used to describe the process of minting coins. It refers to the image struck on the coin, which is meant to be the exact representation of the the person pictured. Uh, that, as you were both saying, that Jesus is, in his nature, identical to God the Father. Uh, verse 3, he had provided purification for sins. There is he's saying that, yeah, he provided purification and the end of verse 3, he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, that Jesus sustains all things by his word, and then the Son became as much superior to the angels. And he goes on in verse 5. So how is Jesus superior to the angels? He's God. <laughs> and they're not God. <laughs> We're getting snarky but, here. But Sorry, yes, yes, it is late. But but why is this important uh, to to his original hearers? It may not be important to us in our American culture, as important as our angelic cherubs are with little baby cherubs. You know, it's that. In well, it's culture, a, it's goes into the the angels and so forth. It, it goes into the provided purification for sins. That if if he's not truly God, then. Uh, he's just one man who lived a perfect life and uh, paid for his own sins, if if he had any, which he didn't. But it, since he is God, uh, now the shedding of his blood pl- provides purification for every sin. The, the whole creation, everything that he made, is covered with his blood because he is also the creator. So anything else that you want to bring up? ladies or Jeremy, on those last few verses talking about Jesus superior to the angels. 
Uh, one of the things that struck me was just how the writer describes the angels as wind and fire, and the seraphim are described, especially in the Old Testament, uh, as angels of fire, and yet Jesus is superior. Uh, we, we're going to hear the Christmas gospel. Uh, we've heard it a few times in Advent of the angels coming to Joseph, or the angel coming to Joseph in the dream, the angel coming to Mary, the angels coming to the shepherds, but they're always messengers talking about Jesus. Jesus is superior. He's the message. They're the messengers. Yeah, and I think too, like um, in our creeds, when we very purposefully say like, you know, proceeds from and begotten, you know, when we're talking about the Trinity there, um, angels are created just like we were created. Uh, the sun was not created. Anything else? I, I think it's uh, interesting, like you were saying about how people don't, in our American culture, no, I guess you were saying that there is a fascination with angels, but n- maybe more of a it art, artsy, craftsy kind of a, a fascination, whereas the people in, in the time that this was written uh, were more worshiping them. And I was just thinking of the ministers of uh, Flaming Fire, the messengers of winds, and how um, somebody was uh, a long time ago, the theologians would wonder, um, you know when the angels came with um, God and uh, met with Abram and Abram fed them? Uh, would how did if they don't have bodies then how did they eat food and uh one of the theories was kind of based on this passage is that it they they burned it up <laughs> like like flames of fire um but it, it, okay one more thing and that is just in uh verse 1 i think this is very ap- applicable to uh, modern american culture that um People wonder why doesn't uh, or can I trust a message that I get in my senses from God uh, that is not necessarily from reading the Bible, but just a feeling that I get or maybe a voice that I'm hearing. And uh, that is uh, very clearly addressed in verses one and two, where it says that, yes, a long time ago, God spoke to people on earth in a lot of different ways. He gave them dreams. He gave them uh, visions. But uh, in these last days, it's the people that were taught by Jesus of Nazareth and wrote down what he taught them. That's how, he, uh, that's how he's speaking to us now. So don't go looking for other types of messengers. Anything else you ladies want to add? To any of the readings that we talked about? Or anything else on the whole marriage theme? There we go. <laughs> I feel like we need to ask you some questions, Pastor Zarling, because you are always the question okay, asker. Okay, so this is the end of the episode. <laughs> okay, yes, you can go ahead and ask your questions. Well, I, I'm not prepared, oh, but no. I'm just pointing out that lots of times... Everybody else is in the hot seat. He's you the are griller. never in he the grills. hot seat. Yeah. Yes. I think you just invited us to a second episode. Oh yes. Well, that's because we'll, we'll wrap it up here. That's because this is has been our longest, but also our best episode. And we're not putting down our <laughs> our past uh, guests, but it is our wives. So this is 
This is Michael Zarling <laughs> with Shelly Zarling, my bride and my better half, and with the lightnings who shine in the darkness, but the darkness cannot understand Ooh. them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas from Racine. <laughs>